first, first I want to talk about Chernobyl. So Chernobyl first Russian reactors are inherently different than U S reactors. A Russian reactor used different cooling material than the U.S. reactors used, so that as it heated up, a Russian reactor would get more reactive. So as temperature rose, it became more reactive. This is Wine, Women, and Revolution with your host, Heather Warburton. Hi, and welcome to Wine, Women, and Revolution. I'm your host, Heather Warburton. Today, I'm probably going to piss you off, and I accept that, and I am expecting that, but I kind of hinted this a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about the nuclear industry, and everyone knows I'm an environmental activist. That's kind of the gist, and one of my main things that we talk about is we've got to get off of fossil fuels. Burning fossil fuels, we know the outcome of what's going to happen with that. We can't keep a carbon-based energy supply for long. And I think by now a lot of people may have seen the documentary Planet of the Humans, which obviously I know is problematic because it veers off into eco-fascism and gives some outdated information, maybe 10, 15-year-old information. But a lot of what they bring up is real concerns. There are damages done from mining the rare earth minerals and the power efficiency is still low. And there's actually a few other things that my guests for today had educated me about in the past when I had discussed this in pre-interview. So how do we meet that need if renewables aren't there yet and we know we need to get off of fossil fuels? I think we need to have a discussion about nuclear energy. So my guest for today, I want to welcome to the show. Uh, he's been working in the nuclear industry for several years now. Welcome to the show, Al. Hi, thanks, Heather, for, for inviting me on. And I understand that I'm probably not going to be very popular with the majority of your listeners, but I, I do appreciate you giving me time to, to talk with you. So the first thing that I'm going to get, I know this is going to be an attack, is that you're some sort of nuclear executive that you own, you know, some regional consortium or something like that. No, you're a worker in the industry, correct? Yes. Yeah. I was a senior reactor operator at a plant. Um, I have 20 years experience in the nuclear field. I did 10 years in the Navy and then 10 years in the civilian world. All right. So, and we've I've been lucky enough to have some pre-conversations with you before. So you've laid out a little bit to me of why I wanted to have this. And I hope my listeners will give you the benefit of the doubt and give me the benefit of the doubt of why we're having these conversations. Because there really is some good information here. And we need to not, if we call out others for being anti-science, you know, if we call out anti-vaxxers for being anti-science, then we need to make sure we don't allow that in our own, you know, in our own club, as it were. So that's why I think it's important to have these conversations. Yes, absolutely. So let's dig a little bit more into the roles that you've had in the industry. You were a safety officer at one point in time, correct? I, I was an officer on a submarine, yes. I was in charge of the reactor on board the submarine. Okay. It was my de it was my department. So I was overall responsible for making sure that we operated properly and that we followed all the, the guidelines and rules. And if there was any issues that we we followed our procedures to make sure that we handled those issues properly. So let's say, uh, you know, people don't know a lot of experience about, you know, nuclear plants on the, if we were comparing this to the Simpsons, what would you, who would your job be? You would be Homer's boss, right? Yes, I would, I would be the level above Homer. Okay. <laughs> that, that was in the civilian world in the, in the Navy world. I was one step above that. Okay. 
All right. So in your capacity there, when you were a senior operator, um, what kind of things did you see on it? What, what were your problems that you dealt with on a day-to-day basis? And what kind of, what was just your general, how you worked in that environment? Problems on the day-to-day basis is just, it, it's a very, very stressful job. There's there's a lot of work that goes on in a day-to-day basis, doing testing, doing maintenance to make sure that we are as up-to-date and everything is working properly. That's that's the big thing about the nuclear field. I know that there's a, there's a lot of fear about it, but we also understand the, the saying in the nuclear field is that nuclear power is special and unique. And it, it's something that we take very serious is we understand the, the inherent danger of using irradiated material. It, it, it is, there is some inherent danger with it. And we do as much as we possibly can to make sure that we operate safely and that, that there's no accidents that occur. And our, our biggest goal, the thing that is our base for operation is protect the health and safety of the public. And every, every morning meeting that I've ever had, we talk about that. What are we doing today to do that? So obviously, safety is a big concern, not just in your day-to-day operations, but in the field as a whole, that the nuclear industry has progressed. So I know when most people hear about, you know, the nuclear energy, their brain is going to go right to Chernobyl, to Three Mile Island. So can you talk a little bit about how that's the, almost a misconception of where the reactors are nowadays, and even a little bit of the misconceptions about Three Mile Island? Absolutely. First, first I want to talk about Chernobyl. So Chernobyl... First, Russian reactors are inherently different than U.S. reactors. A Russian reactor used different cooling material than the U.S. reactors used, so that as it heated up, a Russian reactor would get more reactive. So as temperature rose, it became more reactive. So when you have an accident, it would do essentially the runaway locomotive, that it, it would feed itself, and as it got hotter, it would feed itself more. It would get hotter, feed itself more, get hotter, feed itself more. And their reactors were basically in an office building, not inside of a a containment like we have here in the United States. Combined with that, they were operating outside their normal parameters. They were doing a test that no other reactor in Russia was willing to do because it was too dangerous. They established parameters for the test and were well outside those parameters for a long period of time and decided to continue the test anyway. So there there was a, a multitude of issues with what happened in Chernobyl. Now, the United States, as a reactor gets hotter, it actually gets less reactive because we use water. So it actually, the water will actually disappear and cause the reactor to be less reactive. So it, as it, if it goes overpowered, it will tend to shut itself down. Now, with Three Mile Island, they literally did everything you could do wrong in an accident. They had an issue that turned off their feed water to their steam generators. That, that was the, the initial problem. When they lost that, so it wasn't the the rumor that I think a lot of people pass around is there was a post-it note stuck over something that and that that no. one thing caused it all to fail. That's not accurate. No, they they lost feed water. Their alternate feed water they had a valve out of position, so it wasn't feeding. Now the reactor, when you lose feed water, reactor trips itself, it shuts itself down. Well, the problem was they had no cooling going, so there's still decay heat as you shut a reactor down the reactor will continue to produce heat just as there's there's still enough neutrons and and everything going on in the core that causes the reactor to still produce some semblance of power for a period of time. So you still need to provide cooling. So their safety systems came on and were cooling the reactor. 
Well, they, they heat it up and it caused a relief valve to lift. The relief valve never reset. So they were, they were lose, essentially this is a loss of coolant accident. This is one of the big accidents that we have in the nuclear power industry. This is one that we, we train on a lot. So they were losing coolant. The indications in the control room were that the valve was shut. They didn't know they were losing coolant. They didn't understand all the indications they saw at the time and they ended up turning off all of the cooling water to the reactor. So not only did they not have cooling going on, they were actually losing water and they turned off all the other water because the indications they saw, they, they thought they actually had too much water in the reactor when the reality was they were losing. So they did everything that you could possibly do wrong. It melted down the reactor. The reactor is a slab of molten slag at the bottom of the core. And they killed nobody. And all everything that that's out there is about one millirem of additional exposure to people outside the border. Which what's a millirem? Can you explain that you for an, an X-ray is six millirem. Okay. So this was one sixth of getting an X-ray to people outside the site. And I'm assuming lessons have also been learned. Whenever there's an accident, oh. lessons are learned to make things safe. Oh, not only were lessons learned, but there were, there were significant changes made to the industry after that. So that it was the training programs changed. The, the The main lesson out of it was the indications they had. We have a what's called a pressurizer. What that does is it it adds basically acts as a surge and surge volume for the reactor. So it it goes up and down in level to make sure that there's always water inside the reactor. Well, that was where the relief valve had lifted. So the indications they had was that the pressurizer showed itself being full, which at the time, everybody's always taught if the pressurizer's full, you got to turn off water because that's really bad because now you don't have that surge volume to, to correct for pressure changes. What had actually happened was that the indications were it was full because the relief valve stuck open in the, in the steam space. So that, that caused some of the issues. So training around that subject matter has changed. Yes, significantly. And there was, there's more system indications at the time. They didn't have indications of water level inside the reactor. They only used the pressurizer. We've added systems that can actually tell you what water level is inside the reactor at this point. Stuff of that nature. And it's, it's, it's something that we talk about. Every, at we have constant training. It's a, essentially every five weeks you go to training. So one out of every five weeks, you are training on how to do the job to make sure that we're operating it at, at the highest level that we can. And this, this topic gets covered a lot there. And I think it's, it's important to know what kind of training. These aren't just, you know, it's not Homer Simpson. These are highly trained individuals. I believe you, a lot of your employees that you worked with were represented by IBEW, the union, correct? That's correct. And that's, put it this way, I, at 20 years experience in the nuclear industry, I was still one of the more junior experienced people on the shift. Wow. Yeah. So that does say something. So, yes. I mean, these, these are people that have spent their lives working and studying and, and doing this job. Now, the, the other one I do want to talk about is the Fukushima event. Okay. That was the, there, so there's essentially three big accidents that we've had in the nuclear field. One of them, Chernobyl, killed a lot of people. I, I, I can't pretend it didn't. It did. Fukushima... While it was very scary, I mean, if you remember me and you talking about it at the time, it, it was a serious issue. I, I stand by that. It was something that was never analyzed for in the industry. 
So the industry, we do a lot of analysis of accidents and how frequently they, they can occur. And basically, if something would to occur once every 100,000 years, we consider that a serious event that we need to be analyzed for. And if, if you start getting below that, that's when you can't operate. So that that's the level of where we take safety to is we should not have an accident inside of 100,000 years of operation. Okay. Fukushima was not analyzed. for. So we've analyzed for hurricanes. We've analyzed for earthquakes. We've analyzed for tsunamis, stuff of that nature. So they had the earthquake, which knocked out their main power supply. So they went on to their backup power supplies, systems operating as expected. When the tsunami came and wiped out the emergency power supplies, the industry was completely caught, caught off guard by that. So you and, hadn't really done analysis of two major catastrophes happening back to back in such a short spirit, period of time. Correct. And based on that, the industry actually, made, to, to its credit, made a 180. It, we, we start, every site was required to do Fukushima reviews of their site. They created equipment that is staged in another state that if an accident like that was to occur, they could airlift that equipment to the site where it happens and have the power. Cause that was the big issue. What happened in Fukushima was if they had gotten power within two days, there would have been no issues. But the problem was their spent fuel pool. They lost cooling to their spent fuel pool. And after so many days, it, it essentially heated up. And that's what caused the majority of their problems. And again, even on that, the, the death toll from Fukushima was below 50 people. And that was the second worst accident we've ever had in the nuclear industry. Well, I guess let's talk a little bit about, since you brought it up, the spent reactor, the cooling pools where we put the leftovers. I know right. that's a concern a lot of people have about Absolutely. this crap that we're producing. What happens to it? Where does it go? Can it leak into my water supply? Can it do all no. these things? Okay. No, it can't leak into the water supply. One, it's it's the majority the the majority of it is kept in a pool that has sealed line or everything like that. It's in a building at the site. Now, what sites are starting to do is take the spent fuel pool, the spent fuel, and they're moving it into what's called dry cask storage. It's basically these giant concrete barrels, and they're moving the fuel into that and sealing those barrels. And then they they take it to on site to a, essentially what's a landing pad, and it gets stored there. Okay, so that's kind, and that's pretty much the standard for most reactors. How many reactors are there in the United States at this point in time? Do you know? Um, I think it's about 117 at this point. But with all the closings recently, I don't know the exact number. Okay, well, that's a good estimate at least, and that's pretty much the standard procedure for all of those 117-ish sites. Correct. And from what, from the information I have is if you took all the spent fuel from all the reactors in the country, it would fill a football field 10 meters high. Okay. So just to give you an idea of how much, how much waste we're talking about. And that's for the entire time that we've been using them as an energy source in this country? Correct. Okay. That wasn't like a year's production. That's no, that, from that, that is, start to that now. That is the entirety of the nuclear okay. industry. Okay. It's good to know. Now, I think I wanted to get into a little bit. This is why I had kind of always said, you know, for a long time that I was, I thought that there was a place for nuclear energy in our transition to renewables. Yes. Um, and I had kind of said that renewables just weren't quite there yet. We don't 
have the capacity to make enough renewable energy and I don't want to be like, you know, living in the dark or really having to go through some sort of major impacts like that. And that that's where I thought nuclear energy had a place. But you actually educated me a little bit more about peak loads and how renewables that, you know, there needs to be a backup that's generating energy when renewables are not able to generate energy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's the, the big issue with renewables is, as you know, if, if the wind isn't blowing or the sun isn't shining, it's not producing power. So that means you either need to have a significant battery capacity so it's such that when it is happening that you store enough energy to get, get you through the times where it's not producing energy, or you need to have something else that's creating power. So when it comes down to something else creating power, now you're talking about you're either burning fossil fuels or you're using nuclear as the, as the baseline generation. Now, some of the issues out there is people argue that the goal for renewables is to have that be the baseline operation. And I will admit that, that that's a great goal to try and strive towards, but, but we're not close to that yet. The, the technology isn't there, the, the capacity isn't there. So we need something else that's creating the power that, that meets the majority of the demands. And in my opinion, right now, that's that's where nuclear shines as compared to the fossil fuels. And now I wanted to touch on something. I don't know if you got a chance to watch Planet of the Humans or not. But one of the things that they talked about in there was that right now we're using fossil fuels, usually uh, natural gas. And shutting them down and starting them back up is such a massive process that, you know, even if it's sunny out, like, OK, we shut it down. Now bring it back up. Now shut it down. Now bring it back up that that actually uses more fuel than operating consistently without having the renewables at all. Is that something that's also true for nuclear as well? Problem with nuclear is nuclear does not do well going up and down. It's the, the, the plants are, are fairly large. So nuclear tends to be best when you can just operate at a stable power and just stay there. The, the startup process for a nuclear power plant is roughly about six hours to start one up from from your from your normal starting point I'll, I'll say of, of being shut down so it's it's not a it's not a quick process at all and there's a lot of paperwork involved because because of the fact that nuclear is special and unique and that there are potential issues if you don't follow process if you don't take your time if you don't go slowly and that's that's why nu nuclear tends to, when you see any place that has nuclear power, the reactors tend to operate at 100% power and sit there. And that's the goal is they, they are not moving. Everybody else is the ones that, that goes up and down to, to account for the peaks and, and shifts in load. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the energy generated from nuclear energy versus like a plant that's generating nuclear energy. How does it compare to one that's using natural gas, for example? Is it generating significantly more energy, about the same? Significantly can you more. You can replace maybe a few natural gas generation facilities with one nuclear facility? Most, most nuclear plants in the country are somewhere between 600 and 1300 megawatts. So that's, that's a fairly significant amount of energy. Do you have any idea, even if it's just kind of a rough estimate of what the average like natural gas, for example, generation facility produces? Yeah, I don't know. I think I think like the smallest nuclear plant would be about the largest natural gas plant. OK, from what I understand. 
All right. And there are there is large varying in size of nuclear plants in this country? Not a large. It's there's a. How do I describe? Um, there's a there's a couple different nuclear designs, there, but there's only a few of them that are out there. So it, most plants tend to fall into a very specific design. So it's it's not a very large variance. It's for the most part, 900 to 1200 megawatts is the typical nuclear plant in the country. Let's talk a little bit about the future of nuclear industry or of nuclear energy as on the tra trajectory that, that we're at. They're shutting down plants fairly frequently now, right? Yeah, nu nu nuclear, I hate to say it, is, is, is in, a, in a very rough spot right now. It's, there's a new plant being built in Georgia, and the hope is that that plant, everything will go successfully there, and that we'll be able to have a renaissance of nuclear. But the reality is public perception is, is one of the big killers of the nuclear industry. The, the, every time you see nuclear in, in films, TV, stuff of that nature, it's it's nuclear killing everybody, and that hasn't been the the reality of the, of the time that nuclear has been around. And I mean, you know, our nuclear energy generation—we talked about this briefly before we came on—is kind of an offshoot of our desire to bomb people. And then we realized, oh well, we can make energy out of this too. So there are other avenues of nuclear energy that we're not really going to dive into today. But I know Andrew Yang made a lot of promises about thorium reactors, and so we kind of associate it with our ability to bomb people. And that's unfortunate, right. I think that. It's kind of we have this vision of the devastation of a nuclear bomb and not really doesn't leave a lot of warm fuzzies left over for the nuclear industry. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And that's and while the nuclear bomb is developed slightly differently than nuclear, reactor, not slightly different, it's developed a lot differently than nuclear reactors. Yeah, it's the association between those two is is hard to get around. It's why plutonium and uranium won out over thorium. It's it's. I can't lie and say that, that it's been divorced from the from the weapons industry. It hasn't been. And as you know, I'm all for if I think we should continue to, to research, we should continue to develop new technologies. That's the goal is we should be constantly evolving as we learn better and new techniques. We should use them. That's why I'm, I'm all for renewables. I don't I don't understand why the choice has to be either renewables or nuclear. I don't understand why we have to choose one side. I, I think both are great. Right. And we know what fossil fuels are doing. That's a given. We have very clear projections and actually every projection gets worse than the one before it. But we have projections. We know the impacts that's going to have on our planet. And we right. know we aren't there with renewables to be able to fill that void. Like, it seems like to me, it's the only option left is right. nuclear. And, and as you say, we know what fossil fuels are doing. We also know that nuclear is just as clean as solar and wind. And I, oh, go ahead. Sorry. And, I, you know, the arguments that, that I've heard people use is, but the mining, the mining of nuclear, you know, we have to mine the uranium. Well, yes, I agree. We do have to do that. And that's bad for the environment. But I'm also curious where they think the materials to make solar and wind are coming from. Are, are they not magically coming from the ground? Because yeah, I had read an also. article not too long ago that the amount of rare earth materials of minerals that are used in solar 
with the get, given the current efficiency of solar, which is significantly better than it was 15 years ago. 15 years ago, I believe it actually took more energy to make a solar panel than it would ever generate in, in its life. Correct. We're and well that beyond changed. that now. We do yes. generate a good amount of energy from solar. But if we, at the current efficiency, the amount of rare earth materials we would need to go entirely to solar doesn't exist on the planet. I believe it. <laughs> so there's definitely some mining, in, very invasive mining in all of these ways of producing. You know, the sure. fracking for natural gas. There's mountaintop uh, cutting down. There's all kinds of, all of this does require some environmental devastation. Right. And, any, any form of energy, unfortunately, is going to cause issues to the environment. I mean, hydroelectric, building dams changes the environment it it just does it's a renewable yes but it does it does affect the environment now is that better than coal and and natural gas absolutely i mean i, I don't think anybody would argue differently but compared to nuclear it, that that's where the question comes in of maybe not so nuclear ener energy is extremely efficient once we have done that mining to yes. get the Uranium? <laughs> I don't know a lot yes. about nuclear. Uranium. <laughs> uranium. Uranium 235 is what we use. All right. 235 to 238. And that has to be enriched as well, though, right? Well, that's what they, when they talk enrichment, what they're talking is uranium 235 versus uranium 238. Okay. Uranium 235 is what you need to actually have power production. So enrichment talks about uranium has its normal two stages of 235 versus 238. So depending on how much, for example, in the Navy, we used about 99% uranium-235. In the civilian world, it's about 5%. Oh, wow. That's very different. So <laughs> right. Well, the Navy reactors are designed to run for 20 years. Civilian reactors, every year to, to two years, it's refueling. Okay. So that's, that's why there's a significant difference in that aspect. Okay. But once all that is done, it becomes a very efficient reaction. Yes. Um, if you look at capacity factors across the different methods of creating power, nuclear is heads and tails above everybody else. The capacity factor is how much power it can produce and how, how much of that power it's producing. A nuclear plant on average across the country is about 98% capacity factor. Okay. So it, it constantly produces power at the level it's supposed to be producing power. And how much energy does it require for its to be injected into the system for its day-to-day -day operations? Um, all of it comes from the reactor itself. So there, it's nothing from the outside. Once it's up and running, there's nothing it needs from anybody else. It creates enough power to run all of its equipment. So there, that six hour we talked about, the getting it up to speed process is the only time it draws off of the grid. Well, anytime it's shut down, it okay. draws off the grid. Uh, okay. Once, once you're up and running, it produces power for itself. Okay. And it produces far more than it uses, obviously. Oh, well, well more, yes. <laughs> Do you have any idea of the magnitude of difference or? Um, magnitude of difference, you're talking about a, a, probably about 500 times more than it needs, it creates. Okay. So it's a fairly, Roughly. it is a very efficient way of creating energy. Yes. So do you think that we're going to have a nuclear future or what do we need to do? Where can, okay, three questions. Do you think we have a nuclear future? Those of us that are 
wanting to have these discussions. What should we be doing? Not as like scientists or people that are in the industry, but just as people that want to have the discussions. What can we be doing? As far as do we have a nuclear future? I mean, we still have nuclear plants. So yes, to a degree. At the same time, more and more plants are shutting down. So it, it, it is creating a, a environment that maybe we do, maybe we don't. So it, it's nuclear is very much in flux right now. As far as this, what we should be doing, having legit discussions based on science, based on facts, based on outside of motion. And that's the problem is too many times you can't talk about nuclear without getting emotion involved. Because, you know, one time I saw in this movie that the reactor burned through the center of the earth to China. Thank you, China syndrome. So that that's the type of stuff that doesn't help anything. You know, watching a, a, an entire season of 24 where they talk about taking remote control of every reactor in the country and melting them down does not help the nuclear industry. And uh, one, that's obviously not something that can happen, right? <laughs> one, that's, that's completely ridiculous because the... Every, every nuclear site has cybersecurity as it is, and everything's divorced from the internet to, that would protect the plant. And there's always local operation that can't be over it. So, so no, that, that was completely ridiculous, but it's that type of stuff. People see that. And unfortunately they're willing to, they're willing to dispend belief for certain things. Like they know it's ridiculous, but when it comes to nuclear, they see these things in movies and TV and they don't, associated that that's ridiculous it's it creates fear it stokes fear of oh my god we're all going to die from this and that's not reality nuclear power is does have some inherent dangerousness it does i'm i can't deny it i'm not trying to deny it but we have learned over 80 years how to operate safely have we had some mistakes absolutely but we continuously try to learn and improve from it so what we need to do is just continue having discussions, having real discussions about what people's concerns are, why they have those concerns, and what we're doing to address them. Are there any resources you know of for people who obviously do not have your level of training and knowledge in the industry who want to learn more about the real science? Do you know of anywhere that they can start digging into getting a little more information? I would start saying the NRC website, the, so nrc.gov. It's a great resource. It has a lot of information about nuclear industry. And what is the NRC? NRC is the regulatory commission for for nuclear power. It's United States regular nuclear regulatory commission. Okay. So it's, it's actually what governs the rules that we have for the nuclear industry. So we have basically two main entities that guide nuclear power in the country. The NRC is a government aspect. And then we have what's called IMPO, the Institute for Nuclear Power and what that does is they are a civilian side that does oversight of all the plants across the country as well. And basically all the plants pay them to oversee them and basically enforce rules and make sure that we're following standards. And I know what everybody's going to say, well, you're paying them, so they're not doing a real job. Right. Obviously, no, that's it, the question. <laughs> except having been at sites where I, I've seen them come in for, for inspections and interviews, they, they take their job very seriously. It's, it's, it's no joke. People in this industry understand that if we have an accident, that's the end of nuclear power in this country. It, it, that's the reality at this point, where, where we are. I mean, you saw what happened with Fukushima. Germany closed their entire nuclear industry from Fukushima. 
things and it didn't even happen in their country. So we understand in industry that this, this is no joke. We have a responsibility to the public to operate at the highest standards. And we take that very, very seriously. Well, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining me today. I'm probably, we probably both have my listeners fuming at this point in time. This may be the most hate mail I ever get on this episode, I think. And I'll let you know if it is. I'm but sorry about that. It's okay. I, I'm the one that asked you to be on my show. Because I think these conversations are important. We need to come at it from a place of science and of really understanding all of the variables of everything we're talking about. If Absolutely. we want to have an energy future, if we want to have a similar lifestyle to what we have, if we don't want to have to veer into Malthusian ideas about population control, then we need to talk about what are the best ways forward. Right. I mean, we yeah, we could go back to the dark ages and operate without electricity and and the earth will take care of itself at that point. But I, I don't think we're ever getting back to that time frame. So having real discussions about where our power comes from is something that we need to be doing on a routine basis. Do you have any closing words for my audience before I let you go? Um, hopefully I didn't anger you guys too much. It was obviously not my intention to try and be contentious. And uh, as I said, I'm always open to, to hearing new ideas and new discussion points. And that's hopefully, hopefully they see that, that, that people operating in this field aren't just closed minded. We don't think it's the end all be all, but that there is, there is good that comes out of nuclear power. All right. Thank you so much, Al. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks. To my listeners, thank you for joining me here today. I know I pissed you off today, and that's okay, because I want to make a discussion happen. And next up, you know, if you really can't get through this episode, I understand. It's okay. You know, I have plenty of other episodes that you can dive into. But hopefully you've joined me and you're willing to have this and to keep the discussion going. I I'm not I'm clearly not someone who supports any of these industries. I want to nationalize all of them. I don't think there should be a profit in any electricity generating industry. And I want it to be as controlled by the people as possible. And I think there is room for that for nuclear in that energy future that I envision for us. The future is to create. Go out there and create it.